0: Hey, it's Jen. And just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the latest on coronavirus and other stories, keep up with your public radio station and follow updates at NPR.org.
1: You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm NPR's Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. Let's get into the news roundup. We are a month from the midterms, and that means it's time for some surprises. On Thursday, that took the form of an announcement from the Biden administration about marijuana. We'll get into that. Plus, a curveball from OPEC has the president fuming. And bombshell reporting from The Daily Beast adds a twist to an already chaotic Georgia Senate race. So let's jump in. Shane Harris covers intelligence and national security for The Washington Post. Shane, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Ali Vitelli is a congressional correspondent for NBC News and a veteran of the 2016 campaign. Hi, Ali. Good to talk to you.
2: Hi, my friend. So good to be with you.
1: And Reid Wilson is the founder and editor-in-chief for Pluribus News, a news site focused on state-level policy across the U.S. Reid, welcome.
0: Hey, Sarah. Thanks for having me.
1: So let's talk about marijuana. President Biden says he will pardon all people convicted of marijuana possession under federal law. That move will clear at least 6,500 people convicted on federal charges of simple marijuana possession between 1992 and 2021. So first of all, what does this mean? I'll start with you, Shane. Are all of these people pardoned automatically or are we heading into a more complicated process than that?
3: Well, there will be a process for the Justice Department to, to clear these, but essentially, what the president is saying is that yes, I mean, if you if you if you meet the criteria of simple possession, uh, so we're not talking distribution here, then yeah, he plans to issue a pardon so the records would be cleaned, and that these are only federal cases, and actually, a large number of them probably will be people who were convicted in the District of Columbia, uh, where we're recording from, uh, where federal crime federal federal laws are imposed on this issue, and also if you were charged in a national Park or another federal property. What he's also doing, though, is asking governors to follow suit at the state level and issue similar pardons to people in those states who have uh, have these charges on their record and to clear them. And he also, importantly, wants to expedite a review of whether marijuana should still be considered a Schedule I substance, which is really reserved for drugs like heroin, LSD, what are you know considered the more dangerous ones. So it's beyond the pardon on the federal level. There are these other steps that he's hoping to push forward with in a kind of a broad decriminalizing of marijuana possession.
1: And Ali, uh, talk more about that. I mean, what is simple possession and who are the people that are most affected by this move?
2: Yeah, because because what Shane is talking about there is when you talk about descheduling and decriminalizing marijuana, that then lands squarely in the halls of Congress. And it's something that was a push that was already existing from people like Ron Wyden and Cory Booker, who were working on this on the Senate side. They're still pushing for that. But where it stands right now in terms of what Biden's move yesterday does in terms of the larger picture is the most likely effort of this would then happen in the lame duck Congress, which already is sort of bursting at the seams. So it's not necessarily likely that we'll see a comprehensive piece of legislation on this, but instead likely to see something like the Safe Banking Act, which would which would impact people who are able to work through banks to obtain money. And that was one of the things that this decision touches. The first thing I thought of, frankly, as someone who covered the Biden campaign and watched them lay out the ethos for the administration, was that this was them trying to get at systemic inequities in the ways that drugs have been policed since the 1970s. And this is just a major systemic shift in the way that government approaches pot.
1: And uh, the president is trying to send a signal, I think, to states as well, asking governors to take similar steps. Reid, how likely is that to happen?
0: Well, we've already seen action from Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf, who said almost immediately yesterday uh, that he would do the same thing, that he would issue the same pardons to those who have been uh, convicted of of simple uh, nonviolent possession charges. Uh, A lot of other governors yesterday said that they were reviewing things that Governor Chris Sununu of New Hampshire said he would review what the White House had asked of them. And a lot of Democratic governors, uh, especially in states that have already legalized marijuana, uh, states like Washington, Colorado, Nevada, Touted the fact that they've already done something like this, and they thank the White House for following their lead, which is, of course, uh, what politicians love to do. So um, it, it's probably not likely that we'll see a ton of governors uh, following suit and overturning a lot of these convictions. There was some criticism from uh, Republican-leading states that this wasn't the right uh, approach to take, uh, but uh, it is, it's is—it's not likely that we're going to see too much action, in large part because so many states have moved to decriminalize uh, marijuana already.
1: We're talking with Reed Wilson of Pluribus News, NBC's Ali Vitelli, and Shane Harris of The Washington Post. And um, Reid, you just mentioned that that states have already been moving in this direction, and we we have a listener emailing. John says as dramatic as these actions are, they're actually catching up with state and local government actions and changes in attitudes toward marijuana, which obviously is true. So many states have decriminalized or or otherwise altered their approach to marijuana enforcement over the last several years, which sort of raises the question, I think, um, uh, Shane, is this just a retroactive move or will this – make any difference going forward.
3: Well, I think it's a big step forward when the president comes out and says that he believes essentially in decriminalizing this and importantly wants to change the way that it's listed as, you know, what kind of substance it's classified as. You know, but I do think that the you know, the listener points out correctly, states are already ahead of this culturally, attitudes are changing towards marijuana usage, recreational use, and certainly that the road for that was paved by uh, advances in the use of medical marijuana and I think, you know, what's been clearly demonstrated that it's very useful for people who are suffering from chemotherapy responses and other kind of illnesses. It really helps ease a lot of pain. I just don't think that people look at pot the way they do at heroin. They, they, you know, like they consider it like heroin. It's just the image of it has changed. It's tricky for Democrats, I think, politically because at a time, and we'll talk about this, when we talk about the midterm races, where the Republican critique is overwhelmingly that they are soft on crime and soft on criminals. It could be potentially tricky for the president to be supporting essentially decriminalizing a drug. But it's just not, I think, culturally anymore in the same category as so many what people might call harder drugs than marijuana.
1: Yeah, I mean, about the politics, Ali, obviously, this is happening just before a critical midterm election. What might the impact be of this move?
2: Yeah, You can't pull the the politics apart from the policy, especially not where we are in the calendar. And it's why I think the point that Shane brings up is such a good one. The idea that Republicans are trying to make these midterm elections a referendum on Biden, on the economy, on inflation, on jobs, but also on crime— This could in some ways play into that, but I think that the way that Biden messaged it yesterday again speaks to attacking systemic racism in the way that we've seen pot issues policed. I was specifically drawn to something that he said yesterday where he pointed out that while white and black and brown people all use marijuana at similar rates, black and brown people are arrested, prosecuted, and convicted at disproportionately higher rates. That's what he released in a video yesterday as he was making this announcement. And it strikes me that this is something that speaks to the Democratic base, to many people who came out for Biden and said that justice reforms on multiple levels were things that were important to them. This can be messaged as a promise made and kept, even if it's something that Congress has to follow up on, even if it's playing catch up from things that are happening at the state level. Nevertheless, it could be something that further energizes Democrats. But I do think that the point is well taken that we're certainly going to see Republicans try to have this play into this soft on crime messaging just less than a month out from the midterms. At the same time, it's a little complicated, isn't it? Because this is an
1: issue, um, you know, criminal justice reform. And particularly uh, reform of marijuana laws, drug laws in general, that we've seen we've seen a growing acceptance of across the board, right? I mean, it's no longer just a, an issue for the left. Would you agree, Reid?
0: Yeah, absolutely. In talking to a lot of the people who support legal marijuana and recreational marijuana, uh, when they're running campaigns in a lot of these states to uh, back ballot initiatives or constitutional amendments to, to allow legal marijuana, uh, some of their most uh, core, their corest their voters, if you will, uh, their, their strongest supporters, are white men of you know, sort of the boomer generation. I mean, people who, you know, forgive the... Uh, the um, uh, forgive the the analogy, but people who you know, grew up in the sixties and seventies, and for whom smoking marijuana is not a big deal, and you know this is this is not the the silent generation or uh, the greatest generation's views on on marijuana anymore. The um, you know, people who might vote for President Trump or or former President Trump, uh, or or vote Republican up and down the ticket, you know they're fine with uh, with smoking pot. So yeah, it, among all of the big cultural touchstone issues uh, over the last. 20, 30, 40 years, you know, we haven't seen a lot of movement on, um, say, uh, abortion rights. You know, the, 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 that's sort of a static issue. But when it comes to something like marijuana, public opinion has really dramatically shifted to a point now where about three quarters of Americans uh, approve of legalized recreational marijuana.
1: And just quickly, one more thing on that note, in my own reporting, I remember having a conversation a few years ago with um, someone from a conservative, I think, evangelical group that was supporting some of these changes, although there are differences, you know, (laughs) about the particulars of what what criminal justice reform and and drug reform should look like. But but the statement that someone made to me was that in particularly with the opioid epidemic, drugs have become an issue that touches everyone. And it's and so there that has that has shifted the politics um, of this issue really quickly, Shane, I want to ask you, what will the impact of, of this change be on D.C. in about 30 seconds?
3: Yeah, I think for D.C. residents, it's, it's quite a big deal because, as we said, most of these people charged were probably in the district. So going forward, that's going to be uh, pretty meaningful for people who've been charged in D.C. for marijuana possession, maybe disproportionately meaningful on the federal level.
1: We'll get into more of the week's biggest headlines after the break. Remember to join us for future conversations, download the 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. It's the News Roundup. Let's get back to the conversation. Well, it is October and the midterms are just a month away. One of the most competitive races involves that Senate seat in Georgia. Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock is neck and neck with former football player Herschel Walker, the GOP nominee. But Walker's campaign has had a bit of a bumpy ride, particularly this week. Walker has portrayed himself as staunchly anti-abortion. But this week, the Daily Beast reported that Walker paid for his then-girlfriend to get an abortion in 2009. Walker called that report a flat-out lie. So, Ali, what else is in this
2: Daily Beast reporting? What do we know? This is definitely one of the most fascinating bombshells, in large part because Herschel Walker was already a candidate in Georgia that national Republicans were worried about. Over the summer, while everyone was home on recess, there was this really odd spat between Rick Scott, the head of the Senate campaign arm, and Mitch McConnell, the leader of Republicans in the Senate over the idea of candidate recruitment and low quality of candidates that in McConnell's estimation made it harder for them to win races that they would have needed to win in order to take the majority. So this was already a a race that national Republicans were concerned about because Herschel Walker had stumbled as a candidate multiple times before. What this article and this reporting did though is say that they had a receipt from the woman at the center of this who now the Daily Beast has followed up and said that this is also a woman who ultimately father, who ultimately um, had a child with Herschel Walker as well, but that he gave her money and the get well card to have an abortion during their relationship. He is denying this flat out, but he's also had some really strange turns of phrase as he's been talking through this issue in the media, mostly on conservative radio. At one point recently, he seemed to also say that, that this wasn't... Um, that the act of, of having the abortion itself was was in some ways not problematic, but he was still denying that he did it. And so he has had some very ham-handed responses to this. Nevertheless, as Herschel Walker himself has been denying that this ever happened, most national Republicans have been rallying to his cause, defending him. He's seen big fundraising spikes, but I think the thing that's the most fascinating about all of this is that abortion has been the flashpoint issue in these midterms that Republicans absolutely do not want to be talking about, and yet here it is in one of their most marquee high-profile races. And we've also heard a lot of
1: comparisons this week to, to the questions about, you know, character that were raised by Donald Trump and whether Republicans, conservatives, especially religious conservatives, would get behind him. Clearly they did. And, and we're seeing sort of those questions play out again um, with Herschel Walker. But it almost it's almost starting to feel like a moot question, because uh, as, if the policy lines up, um, you know, it, it, I guess the question, Reid, is, is this any kind of a problem for, for Herschel Walker's campaign with his base?
0: Oh, this is this is a massive problem and I mean to Ali's point, this is the this gets to a, a, a sort of a level of hypocrisy that that would be fatal in a say a Republican primary uh, or or in sort of a normal political environment right I mean this is something that uh, would have doomed a normal candidate but then again, is Herschel Walker a normal candidate and are we in normal political times? No I we're not um, so this is this is has the potential to be a massive problem uh, with Walker's base because Walker is going to depend so much on Religious conservatives who uh, who dominate the the Georgia Republican electorate uh, on on, uh, on the right, um, and if they're unwilling to vote for somebody who has paid for an abortion, uh, then he, I mean, this is this is this was going to be a, a nail biter of a race anyway. Uh, now he risks a, a bunch of his core voters staying home.
1: Well, on that note, after the story came out, Herschel Walker's son, Christian, tweeted, quote, I don't care about someone who has a bad past and takes accountability, but how dare you lie and act as though you're some, quote, moral, Christian, upright man? You've lived a life of destroying other people's lives. How dare you? And this is from part of a video that Christian Walker tweeted out on Tuesday.
0: I stayed silent when it came out that my father, Herschel Walker, had all these random kids across the country, none of whom he raised. And you know, my favorite issue to talk about is father absence. Surprise, because it affected me. That's why I talk about it all the time, because it affected me. Family values people. He has four kids, four different women, wasn't in the house raising one of them.
1: So much pain and anger there from Herschel Walker's son. Shane, I mean, what do you see happening here? How, how do you see this shaping up? And I guess the question is, will the people that, that Herschel Walker needs to believe him believe him or will they believe Christian Walker and, um, and his former girlfriend?
3: Yeah, I think it's not surprising that Herschel Walker denied the report first off and that people have rallied around him, particularly Republicans. I don't know that they have any choices left. I mean, he is the nominee and we're five weeks out uh, from the election. Uh, The the, the video by his son, I think, is very compelling and in some ways makes it even harder than the initial report because here he is as someone who does make TikTok and other videos like this. He has quite a following and he's criticized liberals before and and, and even embraced his father in the past. And now he's basically saying This man does not represent the kinds of values that we want to see in candidates. Um, You know, I spent time growing up in Georgia uh, uh, and still have family there as well. It is hard to overstate the degree to which football (laughs) reigns as almost like a religion in Georgia. And Herschel Walker had so much credit and kind of heroic status. Uh, as a football legend. But he was always seen, I think, even by Republicans, clearly, as Reed alluded to, as a very problematic candidate. And Allie talked about the stumbles that he had uh, during the summer. Uh, you know, take it for what you will as a focus group of two. I spoke to a couple of Republican voters that I'm close to in Georgia yesterday, both of whom voted for Donald Trump in 2016, not in 2020. And they are both going to vote for Raphael Warnock uh, when it comes to the midterm. Uh, one of them voting for a Democrat for the first time she's ever voted for a Democrat. Um, I don't. Know that you're going to see a lot of tickets splitting, but boy, if there was ever a reason that Georgia voters needed to split a ticket or sit it out for, this, for a particular election, I think they found it. And I think this abortion issue maybe just pushed Republicans who were already very concerned about Herschel Walker's fitness for the Senate uh, over the edge and gave them a, a good reason not to vote for him, particularly those voters for whom abortion is a very important issue and who are uh, pretty staunchly pro-life. And there are many of them in Georgia.
1: Uh, on this note uh, somewhat Joel emails us quote, I quote David Winston advisor to Republicans in Congress the base will turn out they always do elections are won in the middle independents are the ones who decide who wins and who loses in swing states. We're rounding up the week's news with Ali Vitali, congressional correspondent with NBC News, Reid Wilson, founder and editor of Pluribus News, and Shane Harris, an intelligence and national security reporter for The Washington Post. We do want to hear from you. You can tweet us at 1A or send us an email at wamu.org. Um, now, as Shane mentioned, Christian Walker has a social media following prior to this, and he's been a right-wing
2: influencer on social media for years. So, Allie, what is going on here? I think that's the question that a lot of people, including me, who are watching this unfold, are asking. It is always a really striking moment when you see a family member, in this case, the son of the candidate, coming out and saying that everyone in Herschel Walker's life begged him not to run. He did so anyway, and now this is the outgrowth of that. I think that's a really striking piece of this. But... You know, there's, there's the personal, the family, and that becomes political. But I also don't think that you can take this moment in Georgia out of the larger national political landscape And I think the reason that it's so inextricably linked there is because of the ways that abortion is now the central issue, despite the fact that neither Warnock nor Walker want to talk about this allegation. The idea that abortion has changed the landscape in this midterm election cycle is palpable. It's the thing that has Democrats feeling better about their prospects than they did at any other point throughout the summer when they see the way that enthusiasm is galvanizing people. And Republicans want to make this an election about the economy and about crime, Democrats would like the issue to be focused on reproductive access among the other things that they've managed to do while holding control of both houses of Congress. So again, this provides an opportunity for Democrats even if they want to sidestep the allegation because certainly the issue here is not the abortion, it's the hypocrisy around someone who wants to limit abortion access, having access to that care for people in their lives. Democrats are happy to have the conversation around providing access to care and abortion care, even though that's not the conversation Republicans want to have. It's definitely what's going to be happening now in Georgia, but this is a conversation that's already been happening nationally. I want to jump
1: now to another Senate race that's had its own drama this week, this time Pennsylvania. On Monday, Democrat John Fetterman tweeted about his Republican opponent, quote, breaking Dr. Oz is a puppy killer, end quote. And I have to say, this is just one of those quotes, one of these stories this week that, you know, when you just think politics can't get any weirder, <laughs> one, of, one of these stories happens. So, Reid, where did this allegation come from? What is this about?
0: So this is about some... Uh, uh Experiments, I suppose, is that tests uh, that that Dr. Oz uh, conducted uh, earlier in his career. Um, I'm I'm sort of reminded of of when Bill Frist, the former Senate Majority Leader, uh, had the same issue. I think it, it, during his medical uh, education, um, and this is something that. It, I mean, this is this is like the ugliest Senate race that we've seen in in recent memory. Um, these two candidates have spent more time than than anything else sniping at each other on Twitter in a in a way that. You know, in a previous generation, it would not be terribly becoming of people who want to to serve in the United States Senate. Um, but there in in recent weeks, I think we've seen some movement uh, on Dr. Oz's behalf. I mean, he was another one of these uh, troubled candidates who came out of a really contentious Republican primary with some very bad ratings uh, in a in a sort of normal political atmosphere, you know some generic Candidate with an R after their name uh, would be expected to do very well in a midterm election in a swing state like Pennsylvania, but Oz came out of the Republican primary with with very high unfavorable numbers, and John Fetterman is not sort of the typical Democrat uh, you see running in one of these races, Uh, and and so that gave Democrats a chance of picking up a Senate seat in an atmosphere when they really had no business doing so, and so this is uh, in just the last couple of weeks we've seen Dr. Oz on the move. in uh, a lot of these polls. And so I think uh, Fetterman has, has had to go on the offense, in- including on something like this.
1: Let's talk now about the rebuilding efforts after Hurricanes Fiona and Ian. On Monday, President Biden visited Puerto Rico after it was hit by Hurricane Fiona last month, and he drew some comparisons to the last administration.
0: After Maria, Congress approved billions of dollars for Puerto Rico, much of it not
1: having gotten here initially. We're going to make sure you get every single
0: dollar promised. And I'm determined to help Puerto Rico build faster than in the past and stronger and better prepared for the future. And that's why I approved emergency
1: declaration of Puerto Rico before the hurricane. Governor, remember my call on you before the hurricane made landfall to deliver immediate federal funding to shelter people and provide essential support. Now, Fiona left much of the island without power. And as of this week, around 82,000 homes and businesses are still in the dark. There's been criticism and worry that Puerto Rico would be forgotten in the aftermath of Hurricane Ian hitting Florida. FEMA Administrator Diane Criswell told reporters, quote, We know there may have been some issues in the previous administration. We are laser focused on giving them the support they need, end quote. Shane, how is the Biden administration handling the rebuilding in Puerto Rico?
3: Well, what President Biden is talking about doing here is trying to ensure that the aid that's necessary to get down there for the cost of rebuilding and and the federal assistance that can be provided is essentially it's, you know, it's streamlined and somebody's paying attention to making sure it's coordinating with officials on the ground. I mean, we learned this lesson, I think, as a country during Hurricane Katrina, that it's all fine and good for the federal government to come in and say, you know, FEMA is going to be there. We're going to pour money into it. If you don't have the kind of handoff and the coordination from the federal to the state and the local level, then the aid's not going to get where it needs to go. <clears throat> it's not going to be timely. And this is exacerbated by the fact, I mean, the damage from these two hurricanes in Puerto Rico and Florida was so massive that the need for rebuilding and repair efforts is all going to be coming online at the same time. So what the Biden administration is going to have to do is make sure that it can surge in that aid, but also get the money and get the repayment to people who need it very quickly so things can, can keep operating. It's This is not sort of a a localized kind of uh, uh, storm, I and mean, these are really just huge swaths of damage and record break, you know, a, a record of number of fatalities in Florida. So this is going to require very sustained administration. Like this is where the nitty gritty of governing actually starts to occur, and why it's so important that the feds and the locals and the states are in touch. It's again why you heard President Biden emphasizing, "I called you, Governor," and he said the same thing about Rick Desantis. He wants to make sure that the federal government is, you know, leaning forward to use that phrase, but that's going to have to be a very sustained effort for months. It doesn't do just to say that, well, I've signed all these declarations and now we're good. This is going to be the role of DHS and FEMA to keep this going for months and months.
1: Governor Ron DeSantis and President Biden have sparred in the past, but it seems they largely put politics aside for this visit. How did the trip go? Ali, I'll turn to you. What do you make of how that trip went in, in that regard?
2: That's what you have to do in moments like this. And that's what the American people would look for, and the people of Florida especially, because you need the millions in federal funding to help rebuild. There's no politics when it comes to those dollars actually getting to the people who need them. And look, this is Biden as compassionate commander-in-chief it's who he campaigned to be. It's what people like about him as a politician. And look, for DeSantis, this is a matchup that he could very well be looking towards in 2024. But for now, that was a side. And you just saw two men trying to serve the people who they govern.
1: We're rounding up some of the week's biggest news. We'll be back with more in just a moment. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. It's the News Roundup. Let's get back to the conversation. I want to move on now to some economic news. OPEC announced this week that it would cut down its oil production by 2 million barrels per day. The news comes after the Biden administration attempted to dissuade the coalition of oil-producing nations from making such a disruptive move. So Reid, what kind of impact could this have on gas prices and the global economy?
0: Well, this is gonna send gas prices uh, much higher uh, than they have been lately after uh, months of prices coming down and then sort of stagnating uh, here in the United States there's no way that this doesn't royal global markets and and send the price uh, higher I mean the OPEC has been uh, a, a thorn in the side of, of US gas prices I mean they, they control uh, the, the global oil supply and uh, what we're likely to see is just higher prices at the pump and of course this comes at a terrible time for the president whose approval ratings started sinking as the price got higher and higher and who bragged about bringing the price down uh, earlier this week uh, he was uh, the, the uh, White House press secretary was asked, you know, if the president is, uh, can take credit for gas prices coming down, should he take the blame when gas prices go back up? And of course, the press secretary said, no, not in this case. But, you know, the president went to Saudi Arabia to meet with uh, the crown prince and uh, to try to get OPEC to at least avoid uh, curtailing production, if not uh, to bolster production. That effort clearly didn't work. And, and now OPEC has sort of delivered a gut punch uh, to the president's administration. Here we are are a month before the midterm elections in which, you know, the president's party is in jeopardy of losing control of Congress.
1: Shane, what else might the president be able to do? What kind of response might we see going forward?
3: Well, in the near term, there's not a whole lot that he can do in terms of bringing gas prices down. And AAA has pointed out that the national average for gasoline, price for gasoline rose several cents just on the news of the OPEC decision. Um, uh, In the long term, you know, there is a push by Democrats in Congress that would essentially take punitive steps and try to decouple a lot of U.S. foreign policy and military involvement and assistance to Saudi Arabia, which, of course, is the biggest OPEC member and really calls the shots um, that 's not going to happen you know in this g- g- calendar year, uh, but that 's a signal I think that This move is prompting Democrats now to come out and say, like, we need to fundamentally reassess our relationship uh, with Saudi Arabia. And and this is a big foreign policy embarrassment, I think, for President Biden, who took a lot of heat for going to Saudi Arabia. We all remember the fist bump that he exchanged with Mohammed bin Salman, uh, the questions of whether or not he pressed the Saudi leader on the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, who wrote for my newspaper. Uh, And now uh, in this effort to sort of maintain good relations with the Saudis, they turn around and do this is how the, the story is playing out. So there's not a lot that the president can do in the near term. Even releasing oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is not, go- it's a, it's not going to fundamentally turn around the dependence that the United States has right now on OPEC and where it's setting the prices.
1: Turning now to the Supreme Court, after wrapping up a high-stakes term in June, the court reconvened on Monday. On Tuesday, justices heard oral arguments for a case that could decide how much race should factor into the drawing of congressional district maps. Merrill v. Mulligan, Milligan rather, centers on an Alabama congressional map from 2021, which a lower court has said violates the Voting Rights Act. Now, during oral arguments, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson got into an exchange with Alabama's Solicitor General Edmund LaCourt, Jr., who was arguing in favor of the state's maps.
4: I'm trying to understand your position that Section 2, which by its plain text, is doing that same thing is saying you need to identify people in this community who have less opportunity and less ability to participate and ensure that that's remedied, right? It's a race-conscious effort, as you have indicated. I'm trying to understand why that violates the 14th Amendment, given the history uh, and, and, and background of the 14th Amendment.
3: Uh, the 14th Amendment is a prohibition on discriminatory state action. It is not an obligation to engage in affirmative discrimination in favor of some groups vis-a-vis others. No, but I,
4: as, as the record shows that the reason why the 14th Amendment was enacted was to give a constitutional foundation for that kind of effort.
1: That was Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson and Alabama's Solicitor General on Tuesday. Allie, let's start with the oral arguments for the Alabama case. What were the arguments, first of all, in favor of these maps?
2: Yeah, you you heard them. And and what's at the heart of, or a piece of them anyway, but what's at the heart of this is the issue of race. And it comes in the larger landscape of the way that the Voting Rights Act has been interpreted by the courts over the course of the last decade or so. Since 2013, we've seen this Supreme Court strike down or neutralize some of the key parts of the 1965 law. And it's part of why people are watching so closely Although it's a six-three court that is clearly conservative in its bent, what it means to have someone like Katanji Brown Jackson, the first Black woman to serve on this high court, in this space to ask those kinds of key questions, because if they were to make changes that would neuter the provisions that make these protections uh, and and limit this this kind of map making. To allow these sorts of maps to go forward would limit the influence of black voters in Alabama, but also across the country then because of the precedent that it would create. And so certainly it's one of the key issues that people are looking at, uh, both for the way that Judge Jackson will be speaking about it and asking questions about it and ultimately potentially writing opinions on it, Um, but also in the larger landscape where you're looking at a heavily gerrymandered map in a midterm election cycle um, that we just saw multiple states across the country do, do, do new map drawing. Yeah, I wonder if you could drill down just a little bit more on the arguments against the maps. What is the concern? The concern is that you are neutralizing black voters' influence and making it so that there are. It's an easier map for Republican candidates to run in because of the way that Black voters typically tend to vote Democratic.
1: And Reed, this the implications of this case go far beyond Alabama, right? I mean, what is at stake here nationwide? Well, at
0: stake is right at, at stake is the heart of the what remains of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 uh, and whether or not uh, one of the crown jewels of the civil rights movement is going to exist uh, in a in a world where uh, you know the conservatives hold a sixth justice majority on the Supreme Court there are many instances in the court in which Chief Justice John Roberts has acted as, as something of a break on the most conservative uh, inclinations of, of the majority this is is not one of those cases. Uh, Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, has been uh, has been the author of some of the some of the the opinions that have uh, take uh, dismantled parts of the Voting Rights Act in the past, um, and the the future of of redistricting and and, and uh, equal representation uh, in America is is at stake here. So um, this is something that uh, that you know civil rights groups have been worried about for a long time. There have been several cases over the last decade. Uh, Uh, That have chipped away at elements of the Voting Rights Act. And here in Alabama now, there is another question about uh, just how far the justices are going to go in in stripping that away.
1: And of course, this court is returning after the contentious overturning of Roe v. Wade and historically low approval ratings for the court. According to a recent Gallup poll, 47 percent of U.S. adults say they have some trust in the court. That is a 20-point dip from two years ago. So, Shane, what is at stake for the court here as it heads into this term?
3: Well, I think for the court, there's a question of whether or not Americans are beginning to see it simply as another political instrument and, and whether the fact that you have so many justices nominated by Republican presidents means that the court is effectively there to just carry out the will or reinforce the policies of Republican elected officials. And you know, the Chief Justice John Roberts has gone to great lengths to try and avoid that impression. And he's even spoken quite passionately about it over the summer uh, and to say, look, you know, we make controversial decisions. It's fine to Criticize them, But we are not a political body. But at the same time, if the impression among the public is that they are and that they lose faith in the justice's ability to neutrally decide issues according to the Constitution, um, that's arguably a real problem for our democratic system. And I think the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade is probably the most palpable example of that. Certainly democratic uh, candidates for office feel that way, which is why they are pouring so much money into ads on that issue, on the abortion issue. So, you know, this is, the, and this is going to be a very, very busy term. The Supreme Court is, is taking up, again, more big hot-button issues on guns, on climate change. I mean, sorry, on free speech and gay rights. They did guns and climate change before. Affirmative action, voting, as we've just discussed. Uh, so this is a very active court. It wants to make uh, big decisions quickly. And I think that's going to add to the impression that probably many voters have that it's acting uh, with political motivation.
1: On the same day that the justices heard about Alabama's maps, former President Donald Trump asked the court to intervene in the Mar-a-Lago documents investigation. On Tuesday, Trump filed an emergency application to challenge part of a lower court ruling from earlier this month. That ruling allowed the Justice Department to continue reviewing classified documents seized from his estate. So, Ali, what exactly is Trump asking the court
2: to do? He's asking them to let the special master that he wanted to ha- to exist in this situation, he wants the special master to review classified documents that agents seized from his Florida estate But they didn't end up asking the justices to stop the DOJ from using those documents as part of a criminal investigation. And so all of this is is part of the larger scope right now of what actually happens with the documents from Mar-a-Lago. And the concern on the part, it factors, frankly, into the conversation that we've been having about the politicization of the Supreme Court. This is a group where Trump will point out readily that he appointed three of the justices that are currently sitting on this court. And that brings people to the political concerns, even though the court itself should be apolitical. How likely is it that he'll get his way, Allie? I'm, I, as someone who is not a close, close follower of the winds of the Supreme Court at this point, I, I'm not sure, but certainly something that we're watching very closely. Now, this
1: week, The Washington Post reported that back in February, the former president asked his attorney to say all classified documents had been returned to the FBI. At the time, his attorney refused. Shane, what's the significance of this?
3: Well, the significance of that story that we reported is that, you know, his attorney, a man Alex Cannon, initially, I think it's fair to infer, did not have total confidence that his client, the former president, was telling the truth when he said that he had returned all of these documents to the National Archives, which is required by law. And we should remember there was classified information in those documents as well. Uh, and what happened was that uh, the president essentially uh, found lawyers who were willing to attest to that. And some of those people are now Facing questions about whether they were accurate in the claims that they made publicly and to authorities about that. So, you know, it really just raises these questions, I think, of, you know, why hasn't the president, former president been more forthcoming about the documents? Why did he want to portray uh, himself as having turned them over when he hadn't? Why did he resist a subpoena? Why did it take a search warrant to get this information out of his hands? And just very telling if somebody who was, you know, a, a, a lawyer for the president, I mean, somebody who had served and before, uh, basically looked at this uh, statement that Donald Trump wanted him to make and said, yeah, I'm not putting my name on
1: that. Now, on Thursday, a federal appeals court agreed to expedite the Justice Department's appeal over the question of whether Trump should get a special master in this case. First of all, Reid, if you could just remind us what the special master stuff is about and what does it mean that the DOJ's appeal has been fast-tracked?
0: So the special master, uh, President, uh, former President Trump had requested a special master to review the documents seized from uh, Mar-a-Lago in the search in early August. Uh, the a court, a federal judge in Florida uh, agreed, uh, that federal judge had been point, appointed by President Trump. Uh, the judge agreed and appointed a special master who is a senior judge in a circuit in, in New York. Uh, that means he basically that that judge is retired. Uh, so this judge has, has been reviewed the documents and basically has been ruling against uh, former President Trump, uh, in, insisting that the former president uh, basically list the things that he thinks uh, the federal government uh, took that they shouldn't have. Um, the, the fact that this is now fast track, I mean, th- this is basically a, a part of a, a, a delay tactic on the part of the former president uh, that has not worked out. It has not uh, bought him uh, any sort of legal wins or, or uh, legal... Uh, advantage here, even if he had uh, had hoped so.
1: So so why does he continue it?
0: This is what president, former President Trump does. He, is, uh, he will throw something at the wall today to see what sticks and delay any reckoning with the legal consequences until as late as possible. I feel like this is something that uh, we've seen from the former president time and time again. Uh, I mean, basically, uh, throughout his entire business career, through his political career, you know, it, the, the, the reckoning is always waiting until tomorrow.
1: That's Reed Wilson. He's the founder and editor-in-chief of Pluribus News, a media organization focused on state-level policy in the U.S. Also with us was Ali Vitali, congressional correspondent with NBC News, and Shane Harris is an intelligence and national security reporter for the Washington Post. Thank you all for joining us. Before we go, a moment to remember the Queen of Country Music. Loretta Lynn built a prolific songwriting career that spanned six decades and produced 46 solo studio albums. Through her music and the biopic, Coal Miner's Daughter, the world learned about the struggles of working-class Appalachian women. Lynn grew up in eastern Kentucky and was married with four children by the time she was 20. I
5: didn't only take care of the four kids um, and have the four kids. I was having to work, too, cleaning house for a neighbor. And, I, th- and I, I was bitter the whole time, too, you know, because I thought, well, you know, it shouldn't be like
1: this. You've got four kids, one right after the other. The man should take care of you better. Her struggles with poverty and men led her to write feminist anthems like The Pill.
6: You wind me and dine me when I was your girl. Promised if I'd be your wife, you'd show me the world. But all
1: I've seen Lynn died this week in Tennessee she was 90 years old
6: I'm
1: down your because now I've got the pill. you're listening to the news roundup we'll discuss the biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment
5: and every year that's gone by, another baby
1: You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm NPR's Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. Let's get into the global edition of the News Roundup. Joining us this week, Anne-Marie Hordern is the Washington correspondent at Bloomberg. Anne-Marie, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And Laura Seligman covers the Pentagon for Politico. Laura, welcome back.
4: Thanks so much for having me.
1: And Robbie Grammer is national security reporter at Foreign Policy. Hi, Robbie. Thanks for being here.
4: Thanks.
6: It's great to be here.
1: On Wednesday, the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC+, plus said they will slash output by 2 million barrels per day. This is the biggest cut since the pandemic started in 2020. The White House's reaction was swift and accusatory. It's clear that OPEC+, plus is aligning with, with Russia with today's announcement. That's White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre speaking to reporters aboard Air Force One hours after the OPEC announcement. Anne-Marie, you've got your eye on oil. Saudi Arabia's leadership has said the cut equivalent to about 2 percent of the global supply was necessary to respond to weaker interest rates and a sagging global economy. Can you explain that to our listeners? So the way the kingdom sees this right now is this threat of potential recessions around
5: the world they see in their eyes a lack of demand right now. And what they think is that in order to recalibrate that, they need to take some oil off the market. We should note that the two million barrels a day is a paper cut, which basically means there's a ton of countries in this cartel and their alliance with friends like Russia and others. And they're actually not meeting their current production quotas. So the real physical removal of barrels from the global oil market will actually be closer to like 900,000. But this is a huge issue for the Biden administration ahead of the midterm elections. And the president just made this historic trip to Saudi Arabia this summer. It was controversial. And now we're just weeks out. And what they really need is to keep a lid on oil prices so they can keep a lid on gasoline prices.
1: So it was a snub in that sense to the administration. And Anne-Marie, what can we say about what this will mean for prices at the pump, particularly as we get closer to the midterms? Well, any increase in oil prices would likely mean at some point there'll be an
5: increase in gasoline prices, and while we're not likely going to see the peak we saw in the middle of the summer at least in the immediate term, what we saw $5 a gallon, I think was the peak in June, right now it's under $4 a gallon about 3.80. We are seeing it start to trek higher especially in some of these western states you think of pockets in Oregon or Nevada and California they're seeing much higher pump prices which is why you are seeing an administration that is incredibly incredibly frustrated they used a lot of political capital to make sure they had the kingdom on board and I interviewed the president's key energy advisor yesterday, and he was in Saudi Arabia 14 days ago, two weeks. He met with the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, and I asked him, did you walk away thinking we'd be here today with two million barrels of an announcement? And he said no. So what happened in those 14 days? I think another thing you have to think about is there's a lot of talk now, obviously, as the West discusses this uh, oil price cap because they want to maintain Russian crude, but they don't want Russia to reap these benefits to, you know, this is... Putin's. This is his entire uh, lifeline to his economy and to fund this war. And producers have an issue with the price cap. They think it sets a bad precedent. So there's a lot of issues at play here between whether it's the oil market and the geopolitics, but ahead of the midterms, the timing and optics are terrible.
1: And Robbie, as Anne Marie alludes to, there's been a back and forth between the White House and OPEC's de facto leader in Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia has rebuffed criticism from the White House that it was colluding with Russia. What do you make of that?
6: Yeah, I mean, this just adds fuel to the fire of the this diplomatic uh, uh, com- complex situation that the Biden administration is in when it comes to Saudi Arabia. Biden, when he visited Saudi earlier this summer um, and did an infamous fist bump with um, the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, caught a lot of flack back in Washington for um, basically cozying up to a dictator that that he said that he would um, take a harder line on when coming into office. Um, And he's facing a lot of pressure right now from Democrats within his own party who are saying, wait, I thought the whole point of, you know, trying to make nice with Saudi Arabia again is that they wouldn't side with countries like Russia again. And what are we getting in return for our relationship? Um, So it's creating this really complex diplomatic and political situation that the Biden administration is still trying to wrestle their way out of, even as, as Anne-Marie said, they're looking toward the midterms and, and increasingly worried about gas prices.
1: Ben writes to us, there are about 100 million barrels a day pumped and used. A 2 million reduction is 2%. This is an opportunity for oil to make some more money following their massive recent profits. The reduction doesn't help, but it sure gives them an opportunity for profit. Lara, would you like to react to that?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's really interesting. We have a real sort of crisis situation here. I mean, this production cut will only boost Moscow because it will allow Moscow to sell oil for higher prices on the global market. But I, I wanted to mention just that this is really going to impact um, the the war in Ukraine. It's it's potentially going to undercut Western efforts to bolster Ukraine in its fight. Against Russia, So th- th- what I mean is the U.S. and NATO allies have for months been sending billions and billions of dollars of equipment, ammunition, fuel to Ukraine, and there's been broad support for the war. But we're heading into winter now, and any kind of oil-gas crisis where gas prices skyrocket would certainly scare the civilian population, and we may see cracks start to emerge in particularly Europe's Europe support for the war. And Americans' consumers, of course, could also be strained by the higher gas price. So the question now is what can President Biden really do about it? Right. I know I'm um, tracking lawmakers are calling on the administration to remove US troops and, and equipment from Saudi and the UAE but this this seems really unlikely and really he's stuck in between a, a rock and a hard place at this point and it's, it's not clear that he can do much in reaction.
1: Robbie, the surge in global energy costs was triggered by Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February, of course, and this production cut could greatly benefit Vladimir Putin, as Laura just referred to. Uh, Putin's facing down a ban on most Russian oil from the European Union by year end. What other effects could we see from this OPEC move on the war in Ukraine?
6: Well, I mean, I I think, as as Laura mentioned, Europe is uh, incredibly nervous going into this winter um, as they're trying to stock up on as much energy resources as they can. Um, You know, from analysts I've spoken to, it's not quite clear what type of impact um, the OPEC cut will have on Russia, because as as Anne-Marie said, um, you know, this is a cut on paper um, and it's doing little to protect Russia's market share since it's lost already so much From sanctions. Um, But like it is with the Biden administration in Saudi, it's clearly a a diplomatic blow to to U.S. efforts to isolate Russia on the international stage. I mean, among some of the top officials attending this OPEC gathering in Vienna where they made this decision was Alexander Novak, uh, Russia's deputy prime minister, who's played a really important role in helping the Kremlin maintain its diplomatic ties with other major oil producers, even as the U.S. and its Western allies try to. Try to isolate Russia internationally. So, so if if the practical impact on on the price point for for oil for Russia um, is still unclear, it, it's definitely yet another diplomatic blow um, as uh, as this war in Ukraine continues.
1: Now, several Democratic lawmakers have proposed a bill of retaliatory measures against Saudi Arabia. This includes pulling troops and weapon systems out of the kingdom, and even before the OPEC meeting. Democratic Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut speaking to CNBC said it's time to rethink the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia.
0: I think it's time for a
3: wholesale reevaluation of the U.S. alliance with Saudi Arabia. What's the point
0: of looking the other way as the Saudis chop up journalists, uh, repress political speech inside Saudi Arabia, if when the chips are down, the Saudis effectively choose the Russians instead of the United States?
1: Emory, is this a turning point for relations between the United States and Saudi Arabia? Well, deja vu, right? Because we've been here
5: a lot with the U.S. and Riyadh in terms of the relationships go up and down. And there was this U-turn in the sense after 18 months of the Biden administration really having these frosty relationships with the kingdom, especially with the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. And they made this U-turn in this landmark move over the summer and you thought things were maybe going to progress. But as you say, this does feel like a U-turn. It does feel like Congress is not going to green uh, green light arms sales or weaponry. And then you have talk now of this potential bill called NOPEC, which would basically mean that the Justice Department could go after these countries and sue them. And the White House basically gave a nod to that in their statement. So this is something that I would say Gulf officials will have nightmares about.
1: Let's move now to the war in Ukraine. Here are a few headlines from the week. President Biden has called Russian President Vladimir Putin's threat to use nuclear weapons, quote, the biggest such threat since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Moscow has now backed this week's assessment from officials in Washington that Ukrainians were behind the murder of the daughter of a leading Russian nationalist. And in Ukraine, President Volodymyr Zelensky says his country's troops have retaken more villages in the east and south. Laura, let's talk about the president's remarks made last night. Joe Biden has cranked up the threat level to something close to where the world was in 1962. Again, from your sources, from your reporting, what concerns are you hearing about what Putin might do next?
4: Well, so this was another big week for Ukraine on the battlefield. They continued making gains both in the northeast, where they liberated the town of Liman, and then in the south as well in breaking through Russian defenses in the region of Kherson and, and pushing pushing south there. And, and notably, these are two of the regions, the four regions that Putin uh, and annexed this week as well. So this is a really bad look for Putin. And the concerns that I'm hearing is that Putin is sort of backed into a Corner. He's looks to be losing on the battlefield. It's it's an embarrassment after failing to take Kiev in the in the initial stages of the invasion, and now he can't even hold on to these gains that he's made. So the concern is that he may then be pushed into this this situation in which he may use a nuclear weapon, um, and he's in fact. Threatened to do just that and use the annexation of these four regions of Ukraine to claim that Ukraine is attacking Russian territory. So that would be justification for using a nuclear weapon. Now, most people are not concerned that he would use a strategic ballistic nuclear weapon in those that we've seen so much about, uh, which the U.S. would be able to detect coming, but instead a smaller yield tactical battlefield nuclear weapon which of course would still be be catastrophic and what happened last night is that President Biden actually ratcheted up some rhetoric saying comparing this to the Cuban Missile Crisis and warning of the risk of a nuclear Armageddon so this is some pretty big words we haven't seen in a long time um, but but what I'm hearing from the Pentagon and from my sources is is that it, we are not actually seeing any indications that Putin at this point is imminently going to be using nuclear weapons weapons. So so sort of a backpedaling in the damage control by the White House and the Pentagon after the president's sort of inflammatory remarks last night. But it it certainly is something they're keeping a close eye on.
1: And I want to bring in some reporting from on the ground this week. Kiev's forces have taken back more than 150 miles of land in the southern Kherson province that had fallen to the Russians early in the war. The BBC's Orla Garen this week reported on the dramatic retreat of Russian forces from the city of Liman. Here on the road, there is discarded bedding, backpacks, Russian army uniforms and boots. All of this cast aside by Russian troops. What happened here wasn't just a defeat for President Putin. It was a complete humiliation. Last Friday, he announced to the world that he was annexing territory, including Liman. He said it would be forever Russia's. Well, looking around here, you get a very different picture. Robbie, what are your sources telling you? What what credence do they give to reports that the game might be up for President Putin in the coming months?
6: Yeah, I mean as 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 Laura said, I mean it's this this entire war has turned into a complete quagmire for for Vladimir Putin after 8 months. The prospect of a quick victory evaporated in the first month as his you know, army proved to be poorly trained, poorly equipped um, in the face of fierce and very stiff and effective Ukrainian resistance. But now the prospect of any victory is evaporating before his eyes. And I think that's why you're seeing Putin start to lean on this, these threats of using any sort of nuclear weapons, because he's realizing that he made a grave miscalculation in that in thinking that, you know, Western support for Ukraine might crumble, Ukrainian solidarity might crumble, Um, and really underestimate how much these Western weapons have completely, uh, uh, um, you know, turned into an absolute game changer for, for the Ukrainians here. Um, I think, as as Alara said, you know, he's he's really backed into a corner at this point. And there was, you know, this effort to to mobilize hundreds of thousands of of new Russians to to get to the battlefield, but they're clearly just as poorly trained and poorly equipped as some of the other soldiers. So it's not clear how can he achieve how he can achieve any sort of conventional uh, Russian victory here. <laughs>
1: And Anne-Marie, if Washington and Moscow both are now going public with their belief that Ukraine authorized the Moscow car bombing that killed Daria Dugina, what does that change?
5: Well, I think one thing is it's for the Russians. It's how they use this in their press, really, to provoke, right? They're going to say, like, we already told you that this was going to be a provocation from either the West or Ukraine, and we were correct. And even the U.S. intelligence is agreeing that. So this will undermine also some other issues at play. I think about the Nord Stream 2 and 1, the pipeline network, that the West is saying that was a sabotage from Russia. And Russia is saying that that's not correct. It's the West that's doing it. And potentially... The way it's playing in Russian media is that something like this car bombing, will, sh- for that, how they will perceive it uh, to their local audience is very much like, see, we were right. That's why we continue to believe we are correct in other matters where the West is uh, putting out a different narrative than them. And I'm thinking the, the Ukrainians. And if I could just quickly go back to the point about the, the nuclear uh, provocations, what you're hearing from from both sides, there's something else that's interesting happening in Russia and in the media. There's now criticism of the Russian military on Russian state TV. And nothing happens on state TV without the blessing of the Kremlin. And some analysts think that potentially this criticism um, – that you're seeing about the military on the Russian TV, maybe we'll start to have elites thinking, maybe we need to do more. The military is unable to win this war. Maybe it is time Putin goes for a nuclear tactic. So there's a lot of interesting developments, not just with what's coming out of the United States in terms of how they're perceiving this and, and the rhetoric from the president, et cetera, but also what is going on
1: inside of Russians' borders. And Robbie, finally, um, the committee that gets to decide the Nobel Peace Prize has also sent a message about the war in Ukraine. This year's award has been given to activists in Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine who are pushing back. So what more do we know about these recipients?
6: Yeah, the the recipients are um, the Center for Civil Liberties in Ukraine, um, an organization that has organized... A network of hundreds of local volunteers to gather testimonies for human rights violation, possible crimes against humanity by Russian soldiers, which is really important for future trials in international courts. Um, Memorial, a Russian organization that's one of the country's oldest civil rights groups um, that works to both uncover the fate of victims of Soviet era repressions, but also track human rights abuses. In Russia today, which is really important as as Putin carries out not only a crackdown um, domestically, but also a campaign to try to whitewash the Soviet history of repression and, and crimes against Russia's own citizens. Um, and then finally, Alice, uh, Alice uh a Belarusian activist who's currently in prison, um, and a founder of one of the country's main premier human rights centers. Um and I think I think the particularly the, the Belarusian Nobel Prize laureate is important because, you know, in, in the middle of this war, in the middle of Putin's crackdown at home, it's it's sort of been lost in the news that that Belarus, um uh the president of Belarus Alexander Lukashenko is really Putin's major accomplice in, in orchestrating this entire war, um, and has carried out a series of very uh, uh brutal crackdowns on his own population. Um, after a popular uprising several years ago.
1: I'm Sarah McCammon, sitting in for Jen White. You're listening to 1A. Tragedy in Thailand, as a former police officer killed 36 people this week, including 24 children, mostly at a daycare. The shooting and stabbing rampage is one of the worst child death tolls by a single killer in recent history. A teacher at the daycare center survived the attack and spoke with The Guardian. He went that way, I locked the door, but he broke it down and shot it twice, she says. So we climbed the wall and ran down the road to alert people, unquote. Laura, what more do we know about how this attack unfolded and the response from law enforcement?
4: Well, this was just a horrific day in in Thailand. um, When this gunman opened fire on Thursday at a daycare center, he killed at least 36 people including at least 24 children and it's believed to be the worst mass shooting in the country's history um, the gunman was identified as 34 year old former policeman Panyak Hamrab apparently he was suspended from police duty earlier this year related to drug possession charges and more awful details emerged on Thursday including that among the victims are his own wife and his stepson so what happened was that his 2 year old stepson was enrolled at the daycare center, he attacked, but he was not actually there when Panya arrived. So according to the police, he went to look for his son, but the boy wasn't there. So he just started shooting and stabbing people in the nursery, including of course, the children. Then he left and went home shooting and stabbing people along the way. And when he got home, the police surrounded the house, but they found he'd killed his wife and stepson inside and then killed himself. So really just a terrible, terrible day. And and I, I think it's certainly worth having a look at, at Thailand's gun laws at, at this point. And I think there are some lawmakers that are, are poised to do so.
1: Well, they're relatively strict gun laws. At least that's how it's they've been described. But there is also a relatively high rate of gun ownership compared to other countries in Asia. Anne-Marie, what what do you know about the culture around gun ownership in Thailand and and whether there might be a response uh, of a push for stricter gun control efforts there?
5: Well, when you have a deadly mass killing like this, virtually no one was left untouched, really, in terms of who was affected here, a very tiny community— and this was the worst that Thailand has ever witnessed. Um, they're not common in Thailand, these mass kind of sh- uh, shootings, which is why, uh, to Laura's point, you might now have this impetus for lawmakers to really take a look at where the gaps are. Because you don't have mass shootings in Thailand. What was behind this? Um And it's unclear what was the motive behind the crime and the shooter. Um, He was believed, according to local police, to be under the influence of drugs. Um, But definitely this kind of shock to the country uh, has people looking at, well, why this mass shooting? Why now? And is there something we're missing?
1: For three weeks, Iranians continue to demonstrate in the streets after the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini. That's the woman who died shortly after being detained by Iran's morality police. Laura, security forces have been cracking down on the demonstrations, killing dozens of protesters, and pro-government counter-protests have also been held.
4: What's been happening in the past week? So in the past week, we've seen Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, he finally broke his silence on Monday on on these protests. And he condemned what he called rioting and blamed the U.S. and Israel for encouraging the protests as a plot to destabilize Iran. Now, this comes as, you said, Iran has been experiencing its biggest protests in years. This is the third week in the, in the row, I think, that we, we've seen this happening, ignited by the death of Masha Amni after she was detained by the morality police in Tehran. So this comes as, um, you know, the Iranian government has violently cracked down on protesters. On Monday, there was this hours-long standoff between the police and students at Iran's top technology school in Tehran and According to witnesses, the police surrounded the school, fired rounds of tear gas to try and quell the protests, and detained at least 300 students. Now, the the backdrop, bigger picture to this all is just growing social unrest across Iran, particularly, you're seeing this among women. Um, and hundreds of women have been pushing back after Amini's death, burning headscarves and chanting, death to the dictator. Um, this These protests are have been longer lasting and more resilient, it seems, than previous protests. Um, um, but and, – and even in, in the face of this crackdown um, and its prompted responses you've seen across the world, even in Israel yesterday, people rallied in Jerusalem in solidarity with Iranian women. So, so this is protest that seems – they seem to have legs and U.S. officials are, are watching very closely. So we'll just have to see how it develops.
1: Lara, just mentioned those comments from Iran's supreme leader, the Ayatollah Khamenei, and we have a little clip of that to play.
0: I openly state that the recent riots and unrest in Iran are schemes designed by the U.S., the usurping fake Zionist regime, their mercenaries, and for some treasonous Iranians abroad who helped them. These riots have been planned. If the death of this young girl didn't happen, they would have found another pretext to create chaos in the country and harm the country's security.
1: Robbie, how have Iranians been responding to that message specifically?
0: Yeah, I
6: mean, I think the uh, the leader here is falling back on some tried and true cliches that autocrats always use when when they're in trouble, which is to blame external actors and say, you know, protests based on legitimate grievances are you know orchestrated plans, some sort of some sort of conspiracy here. Um, I mean, it clearly hasn't hasn't convinced any of the protesters here, um, and. You know, it's it's hard for it's hard for us sitting here to to fathom the the bravery of Iranian women and, and girls who have who have been leading this movement um, in the face of these crackdowns and with the threat of of jail of of punishment of of death. Um, but it, overall, you know, it, it just reflects this this pent up uh, fury and rage over the course of decades with the government's repression corruption and dismal record on human rights and women's rights and trying, you know, the uh, Khamenei trying to explain it away by saying, oh, it's just the U.S. and Israel's fault. That clearly isn't going to fly.
1: Anne-Marie, the U.S. did issue new sanctions on key Iranian officials. Tell us what these will do and how they will affect also the Iranian people. So there's a number of sanctions that the U.S.
5: uh, recently issued. So there's ones directly involved with those that are Uh, in response to these protests, the the seven Iranian officials, uh, they are said to play a role not just in the crackdown, but also in cutting off the internet. So you saw things like the communications minister, the interior minister, as well as some of the low-level security forces being sanctioned because of this. And you really see the Biden administration taking a different view than, say, some of these same officials they, when they were in the Obama administration take uh, when you're, it's in response to the regime. It's much more forceful. They want to make sure that they are taking a stance right now in terms of what the protests are happening. And that's in contrast to what we saw from the Obama administration in 2009. And Jake Sullivan actually talked about this on Meet the Press two Sundays ago. He said what we learned in the aftermath of that, that you can overthink these things and that the most important thing for the U.S. to do is to be firm and clear and principled in response to citizens of any country demanding their rights and dignity. And we should note, the president had said, we expect more sanctions. So we could see a lot more coming down the pipeline. But we should also take note that Iran right now is heavily sanctioned, their, their economy and, and, and individuals for years.
1: Let's go now to the Korean Peninsula, where tensions between North and South Korea have been rising. North Korea launched its sixth round of missile tests in the last two weeks, firing two ballistic missiles into the sea. The series of missile tests have prompted South Korea, Japan, and the U.S. to conduct drills in response. Now, the U.S. has condemned these missile tests. Here's Pentagon Press Secretary and Air Force General Pat Ryder at a briefing yesterday.
3: Clearly, uh, North Korea is testing its missile program. Uh, It's looking to adapt, uh, and uh, the issue here, though, is that these actions are provocative, uh, they're dangerous, and uh, as you well know, North Korea has not committed to any type of constructive or strategic dialogue on these issues, uh, and so in so much as they're testing these missiles uh, and the way that they're doing it, it has the great potential for um, destabilizing the region.
1: Laura, talk to us about what's happening here. Why is North Korea launching these missile tests right now?
4: So it's worth noting that the U.S. actually played a role in starting this cycle of provocation. This all happened after the U.S. and South Korea resumed these major joint military drools at the end of September for the first time since former President Trump ended those exercises in 2017. So it's been five years since we've done those exercises now we're doing them again. Um, the issue is that North Korea sees these drills as rehearsal for an invasion, while of course the US and South Korea say they are only preparing to defend themselves from an, an attack by North Korea. So we're now in this cycle of provocation of they launch a missile, we do exercises, they launch another missile, we do more exercises. And one thing that happened that we hadn't seen in a long time, um, first flying uh, North Korea launched a missile over Japan, We hadn't seen that since 2017, and that was really scary for the Japanese people. Um, And then North Korea actually sent eight fighter jets and four bombers right up to the border with South Korea, conducting live fire drills. This, again, is something we hadn't seen in a long time, and we saw South Korea in response scramble its own warplanes. So a lot is going on. And another thing that happened is that the U.S. redeployed the nuclear power aircraft carrier, the USS Ronald Reagan which had been participating in those exercises I mentioned but had gone east um, to the east side of Japan it, it actually redeployed back to the waters in between Japan and South Korea where it's it's two ships in its um, carrier in its carrier strike group are actually conducting these missile defense exercises alongside Japan and South Korea so we're seeing a lot of military activity in the region um, it, it's not clear where this is going to go when this cycle a provocation is going to end. Um, but it's certainly something that, that Pentagon officials and folks in the White House are watching very closely.
1: And Robbie, how significant is it that there's this increased U.S. presence in the area right now?
6: Um, I mean, it's it's clearly meant to, to demonstrate resolve uh, with its allies in Asia in the face of, of these new tests from North Korea. Um, I mean, the, the United States doesn't have many good options here. Um, North Korea has demonstrated a Remarkable resilience in in expanding its ballistic missile and and nuclear programs, despite crippling international sanctions, threats from the United States, you know, long term diplomatic isolation. Um, and so, as as it continues to expand its programs, uh, increase its its capabilities, um, and in in its tests, um, the United States has to fall back on uh, deterrence here. Um, um, showcasing its its military, flexing its its muscles with Japan and South Korea here. Um, but at the same time, the Biden administration is still, despite these recent provocations, keeping the door open for any sort of talks with North Korea. Um, right now, they've, they've been saying, you know, we're still open to some sort of working level talks with North Korea. Um, our door is open if they want to discuss um, any sort of de- denuclearization talks. Um, so far, North Korea hasn't taken the bait.
1: I want to talk about one last story out of North Korea, this one concerning former President Donald Trump. In a 2021 interview with New York Times journalist Maggie Haberman, Trump suggested that he had turned over letters with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un to the National Archives upon leaving office. Now, the archive says that is not true, as they later requested those letters from Trump's lawyers. Anne-Marie, tell us more about the story here. What's, what's going on? we
5: heard from Monday from the National Archives and they said they alerted Trump's lawyers that these letters with Kim Jong-un are still missing. And you know, it's interesting you bring up uh, Mackie Haberman's book and-, and Robbie's talking about the Biden administration's approach This is such a different approach than we saw the past four years and really Trump's absolute fascination with Kim Jong-un. And the fact is, especially learning about this on Monday, is that that relationship between Trump, between Kim Jong-un, that may have continued even he left after the White House. Uh, according to Maggie Haberman's new book, of The New York Times, he's told people at his Mar-a-Lago club that he's maintained contact with the North Korean leader. Um, so these kind of correspondences, this miss, these missing documents, the Justice Department is obviously investigating after the FBI, uh, you know, sees the documents in the boxes at the Florida State. Um, you know, there's a lot more we could potentially know about this relationship. But I think really... What happened this week and as Laura is talking about the fact that you see uh, the provocations coming from North Korea and the fact that also it's the first time in five years it's going over uh, missiles going over Japan, it's a complete
1: different scenario we're in in terms of the Washington response. A quick update on a story we covered this time last week. Brazilians are preparing to head to the polls again. The next vote will be on October 30th, and the result will decide who will be president. Pre-election surveys going into last Sunday's vote showed the former president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, with a double-digit lead over the current president, Jair Bolsonaro. But Lula fell short. Polls still show him ahead of Bolsonaro. Next to the UK, its prime minister has now been in office for just over a month and things have not gotten off to a great start. On Thursday, Liz Truss defended her new economic plan and she shrugged off recent market turmoil that saw the pound drop to a record low. Her speech to her party's conference was interrupted by protesters, but Truss stuck to her guns calling out the naysayers, including the unions and the media. The talking heads, the Brexit deniers, Extinction Rebellion, and some of the people we had in the hall earlier. From broadcast to podcast, they peddle the same old answers. It's always more taxes, more regulation, and more meddling. Wrong, wrong, wrong. And Marie, how much trouble is the new British Prime Minister in? I mean, at the moment, this
5: government is in a lot of trouble and it's embarrassing to say the least. This is a policy reversal 10 days after announcing it. And also they dug in their heels and they said when the pound went spiraling to an all time low, when you saw this volatility across the financial markets, they said, we are not going to U-turn. And then what did they do? They U-turned. The Chancellor of Exchequer, he came out. He said, we get it. We've listened. We can't have any more distractions. So this plan they had, which, by the way, the plan was, and which they promised to do, is to cut the top rate of income tax from 45 percent to 40 percent. And now that will be canceled. So this is a big issue for the U.K. because on top of all this, you had a poll in late September from YouGov, and it showed that more than half of Britons think she should quit as premier.
1: And she just got the job. So as we say, not off to a great start. You know, Laura, famously, Britain's first female prime minister, Margaret Thatcher, was remembered for the phrase, you turn if you want to, but the lady's not for turning. All lawmakers change their minds. But why do the stakes seem higher often for female
4: lawmakers? Yeah, you know that's a that's a really interesting question, and it it's certainly one that there's a lot of people speculating about. I, I think that since it it is you know rare to have a, a female head of head of state, relatively rare, I think that the stakes are are higher. And of course, following in the footsteps of Margaret Thatcher, that's that's got to be a lot of pressure there. But but I think the stakes are so high right now because Britain's economy is is really facing a, a slowdown, and we are seeing clashes with the EU, which is Britain's largest trading partner. It's deterring business investment. And then of course you have the overburdened National Health Service, which has been pushed to the brink by the pandemic and has a backlog of patients. So this is, is really just a crisis situation ready to, to erupt. And I think the fact that, that Liz Truss is making this U-turn is just embarrassing and looks really bad right now in, in the, uh, Britain that is coming out of the pandemic, having this, this economic slur, Slowdown and and coming off of Boris Johnson and and all the scandals that that happened there. So so you know I, I really think it's it's a big embarrassment and I think Liz Truss could be in in a really tricky position here.
1: And Marie, has Liz Truss bought herself some time here? I think she's bought herself some time
5: with some members of her party. Right, and Parliament also has to sign off on this, and it didn't look likely. Um, But the fact is, I think there's going to be a big question for anything this new government wants to do is it's going to be a lot of credibility questions, right, with their fiscal plans. Um, Many think that they were attacking institutions like the Bank of England. So everything they do from this point on, there's going to be an immense amount of criticism because that first swing they made, they had to make a huge U-turn on.
1: We have just a few minutes before we need to wrap up, so I wanted to talk briefly about what stories our guests are going to be watching for in the coming week. Laura, I'll start with you.
4: So I'm going to be watching Syria. There is a big story that emerged yesterday um, when U.S. military forces killed two top ISIS leaders in an airstrike in northern Syria. Um, and that comes right after a, a special operations forces raid in Syria as well. And this was in Syrian territory. Now, this is really rare. We haven't seen a U.S. U.S. military force strike uh, or an air raid in Syria in quite some time now. Um, usually it's, it's the Syrian Democratic Forces, our partners in the region that are conducting this fight against ISIS. So the question I have is, what does this this say about where we are in terms of the fight against ISIS? Is ISIS resurgent? Um, Will there be any recriminations from the Syrian government for the raid on their territory? Um, So it certainly has potential to um, become a big story next week.
1: 30 seconds or so. What are you watching? Robbie?
6: I am watching the conflict in Ethiopia. Um, It is Um, You know, a a massive war um, with an estimated 500,000 deaths from the war um, and gets a fraction of the attention that the war in Ukraine does. Um, There's chance for an African Union broker peace talks in South Africa, but it's unclear if that will lead anywhere.
1: And in another 30 seconds or so, uh, Anne-Marie, I'll finish with you. I'll make it very
5: quick. We just had uh, in the last hour the White House announcing these new restrictions on chip exports to China, to their U.S. semiconductor technology. So this is going to really hamper Beijing's push to develop its own industry, also potentially advance military capabilities. What is going to be Beijing's response to this latest uh, provocation from the White House in their tech sector?
1: We're out of time, but I do want to thank my guests. Anne-Marie Hordern is the Washington correspondent at Bloomberg. Laura Seligman covers the Pentagon for Politico. And Robbie Grammer is a national security reporter for Foreign Policy Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Paige Osborne is our managing producer. Maya Garg is our senior producer. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand, with help from Matthew Simonson. Barbanghiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. Thanks for joining us. This is 1A.